But those were wonderful hymns that we sang, all of them in one way or another, extolling the glory of Christ, and uh, particularly focused on, in, in some of those stanzas, on the glory that is yet to be revealed, when, when that glory will be manifest in all of creation, and that certainly is a theme of the book of Revelation, and it's to that book that we are now going to turn as uh, we begin a series on Revelation. We're not going to go through the whole book all at once. Now, we'll first focus on the first three chapters uh, and then go on to do something else for a while and come back and piece by piece work through this very, very crucial book for us as believers in this day and age. What I want to do this morning is not really get into an exposition of the text because before we do that, we really need to answer a couple of questions and they're, they're not really easy to answer. Uh, one of them more difficult than the other. And these are the two questions in our introduction that I want to answer today to the best of our ability. First of all, why study the book of Revelation? And then secondly, how do we interpret the book of Revelation? Why study it and then how do we interpret it? And the more difficult of those two questions is the second one, how do we interpret? And so while I still have your attention, I'm going to deal with the second, the harder one first, and then at the end of our time, look at the first one. Why is the book of Revelation so important for us today? So I'm going to switch the order on that then, and we're going to look first at how do we interpret the book of Revelation, and then secondly, why study the book of Revelation? And to set the tone, I want to read the first eight verses of this book. Here the Apostle John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. As you can sense, even in those words, there is uh, 
great deal of profound truth to the opening of this book, a kind of profound truth that is going to continue throughout the entire 22 chapters of this book. In fact, so profound are the truths written in it in such a unique way that many have tended to avoid this book. In fact, we could call Revelation the very definition of a classic book. It's the one everyone talks about, but very few people actually read. And that is the book of Revelation. And it is a book, as we will see, not only this morning, but as we start to make our way through it, that is so very important for us today to correct so much of our thinking and to get us off of our material circumstances and fixed upon that which is most important in life. But we're in the position of the verses of this book to next week, but we do, as I said, is take care of some introductory matters that are very, very important because the book of Revelation is, is often avoided today because there are so many different perspectives and opinions on it that people are afraid to approach it. And indeed, the perspectives that have been articulated even from the earliest centuries of the church, are complex and admittedly confusing and sometimes even within the church contradictory, the impressions or the opinions that believers have expressed are, are indeed challenging. And so in approaching this book, we do have to take time to explain why that is the case. Why is it that we have all these different views on the book of Revelation. What are those views and where do they arise? From where do they arise? And that's what I want to do, especially in this first question and answering it, is to look at how are we to interpret the book of Revelation? This book that we all know is, is filled with a lot of imagery. It's filled with prophecies. It's filled with knowledge. So how do we approach that kind of language, and as we answer that question, uh, we will see why there are these different approaches. And admittedly, what I'm going to walk through, uh, especially in answering this first question, is complex, and it is somewhat uh, difficult for us to get our minds around. There's, there's going to be terminology, certain terms that we use. You probably use this relation. I want to do my best in explaining why the different views exist and what those views are. And it all comes down to our approach to this book. How do we approach the book of Revelation? What is, what, what is our interpretive methodology? And I want to give you a summary now of four different approaches that have been expressed throughout church history. And at different times, these have been popular. And I'll try to explain some of that and explain why we don't take the three of these views and instead land on one of them. Let me begin with a view that is known as preterism, the preterist view. Here's one of those terms that you probably won't use in any other context other than when you're speaking of the book of Revelation. So uh, on the screen, I've, I've got it on there. You, you have the spelling there. Also, I want to note that if you want to come back to this information because you can't collect it all on, uh, if you're taking notes, these slides are always going to be published on the website. So you can go back later uh, to, the, to, the, to the commissioned webpage on gracechurch.org 
and you can find the sermon and download the slides and you'll have that information right there. But what does preterism or the preterist approach to interpretation, what does it teach? Basically, you can summarize it this way. Preterism teaches that most, if not all, of the prophecies described in the book of Revelation have all taken place. They've all built down the, the root, the Latin root of this term, preterism. It's the Latin term preter, which means past. Past. In other words, what we read of in this book deals with the past, not the present or even the future. And so this view takes that says it was written sometime around eighty sixty five when the apostle Paul was still alive. Around that time, John was moved to write this book, and and at the moment that he wrote it, it 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 was a prophecy, but it was a prophecy that related just to the years, three and a half years or so that would follow. John's writing of this book. So at the time, Revelation was prophetic when John wrote it in AD 65, but then it was all fulfilled within, or more or less all fulfilled within a period of a few years leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year AD 70. There was a Jewish revolt, and preterists would take that the second coming of the Lord came in a certain way in AD 70 to destroy the temple, ending the period of what they would say the Jewish age. And that is more or less what we read of in the book of Revelation. The Great Tribulation, if we would look at the details that we find in, in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, that was all fulfilled within AD 67 to AD 70. And as I said, Christ's second coming then, and there's some different views on this according to which preterist you refer to, but Christ's second coming was essentially the, 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 that manifestation in the clouds when the temple was destroyed. Therefore, in approaching the book of Revelation, those who take that approach would see that really what we read of is the account of what happened to the Jewish people at the end of that, that, uh, that, that sixth decade in, in uh, the first century, in the, years, in the latter part of the 60s AD. And of course, they would say that this uh, has to do with Nero's reign, the same emperor that would put Paul to death and would put Peter to death that he was responsible for exiling John to the island of Patmos, and that John describes kind of the patience or the outworkings of Nero's reign in the book of Revelation. So central to preterism is the idea of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in the year AD 70. That's really the event that kind of uh, caps all of what we read in Revelation. Now, as I already mentioned, there's different kinds of prism, and you do need to, to, to understand this because preterism is, is uh, gaining in popularity in our day, and so it's important to recognize somewhat of a difference between what some preterists will teach and what others will teach. There is the view of what's called partial preterism. Partial preterism believes that 
just a few of the prophets that still remain fulfilled. And so this, this is the view that you'll find with, actually, R.C. Sproul held this view. And you have men like today, Kenneth uh, Gentry and Douglas Wilson, that name is probably familiar to you, who would say that the latter chapter, two chapters or so of the book of Revelation, essentially from the middle of chapter 20, all the way through the end of chapter 22, that which speaks of Christ's actual return, the last judgment in the new heavens and the new earth, that still is future. But everything before Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, has already been fulfilled. It is already in the, in the rearview mirror, in the history books, you could say. And, and, and so the issue is, well, how does preterism, on the one hand, say that the second coming of Christ was the destruction of the temple, and yet say that the second coming of Christ is still a prophecy to be fulfilled? And that's one of the problems. And so they'll try to say, well, there was a second coming and the destruction of the temple, but it's a special kind of, uh, of second coming. It's a coming in the clouds, though Christ does not remain. It's a coming in the clouds, but there is a final, a culminating second coming that is still yet future. But then you'll have those who are what, who we call full preterists, and these are not quite as popular today, but full preterism teaches that all of the prophecies have been fulfilled, uh, and that the, the, the age that we're in right now is really part of the new heavens and the new earth, all, of course, very symbolically interpreted, and human history is just going to kind of continue in this never-ending uh, this never-ending line. Those are those we would call future preterists, and it's kind of the idea that repent for the end is past. There, there is no end. There, there's nothing now that's going to happen that's going to change the current scheme of things. And as I said, full preterists are, are not that common today. Partial preterism is, is the standard view. Now, partial preterism is common among post-millennialists. If you'll remember back to uh, June of this year, it's the correct view. And in that seminar, I, I discussed the different options. Uh, is, the, is the view common for preterists? And in fact... Uh, this post-millennialism and preterism is very today among that growing movement surrounding what's called Christian nationalism. And I'll speak about that in just more uh, a minute. But let me define post-millennialism here. Uh, it's probably another one of those words that you may not use that often. But post-millennialism is the view that Christ's second coming occurs immediately after the millennium, post and millennium. And we're in this millennial kingdom, this spiritual millennial kingdom that began either at the destruction of the temple or sometime after that. We're already in that millennium. Uh, Christ is reigning through the church, and he will reign this way until, and, and this again is the view of partial preterism that does see some prophecies still future, he will reign again until he comes a second, second time, 
And at that time, he will judge the living and the dead and institute the new heavens and the new earth and wrap everything into that. Now, what is known about postmillennialism and what it is especially appealing to uh, for uh, many today, particularly among Christian men who see the rapid decay of what was once supposedly a thoroughly Christian nation, and they're perturbed, rightly so, about that, but they want to see some kind of response to this decay in society and, and don't want to think that we're, we're going to not be able to, that the country is under judgment and is, is headed towards God's wrath. There's this view that, no, this cannot be, be, be the case. And sometimes there's theological motivations for that. Sometimes there's very, very material motivations to that, that I don't want my kids living in a pagan nation. So there's got to be some hope that the gospel is going to prevail and eventually the White House and Congress will be instituting laws that are completely connected with the scriptures. And the view behind that is one of two, is that either that's going to come about because there will be a massive kind of revival that will sweep not only the three, but the whole world itself will become a, a, a tool for the church and that'll happen either through evangelization and the impact of the gospel, or it will happen through a, a nation of evangelical Christians who are getting into office of power and, and then able to institute Christian laws that will then dominate this country and countries around the world. So it's known for a supposed optimism that uh, the church is going to do this that we're going to take back the culture, we're going to take back the country. In fact, we're going to take the world. Um, it's, and, and, and it's appealing if you hold to that. It, it kind of is that adrenaline shot that uh, we're going to win. And uh, this, this culture is going to be reversed and so on and, and so forth. Now, that's what we call preterism. Now, there's a second view. It's called the historicist view or the historical to Revelation. Now, this view isn't popular today. In fact, you don't really find any proponents of it today. But this is how the historicists approach the book of Revelation. Uh, historicists believe that the prophecies of the book, of, of all of Revelation essentially, but particularly chapters 1 through 20, are being fulfilled in the present moment. But in a certain way, the book of Revelation is then a panorama of world history describing events from the first coming of Christ until his second coming. Now, the historicist view will look at the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 and necessarily literal churches. That's not how we're to approach them. Instead, those churches represent different eras in church history. So you have the, the era of the Ephesian church, and, and then you have the, the era of the church of Pergamum, and, and, and then, or of Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and then Thyatira, and, and then Sardis and Philadelphia. Those churches represent a certain period of history. Moreover, Every generation is going to be able to find 
key events within the book of, his, uh, within the book of Revelation because it's this historical uh, panorama. And so you can find things like the fall of Rome in the book of Revelation and the rise of the papacy. You can find Mussolini and Hitler. You can find uh, details related to the Second World War and Saddam Hussein and, and Osama bin Laden and so on and so forth in the, the book of, of Revelation. Um, as a professor at the Master's Seminary, every so often I'll get literature from people who want to sell a book or uh, you know, propose or propagate an idea. And I remember uh, receiving a, a letter from a guy who thought that in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, he, he found the prediction of HIV and uh, Osama bin Laden and the rise of uh, uh, Muslim terrorism. It's that kind of an approach that people take with this. And, and the historicist view comes up with stuff like this where you try to find events of history, whether that's related to Martin Luther or it's related to certain popes, and you could even relate, like I said, to, to different wars in human history. They try to find that symbolically predicted in the, book of, uh, in the book of Revelation. As I said, this view is not very popular today. It, it, it arose during the time of Revelation, but then uh, died down, and very few people hold it today. The third view is the view of the, the idealist view of the book of Revelation. And this one is also very popular today. This view says that the prophecies of the book are not prophecies that are to be understood by sense. Instead, they look like prophecies, predictions of the future, but really they are just pictures that point to ongoing transcendent realities. In particular, these bold judgments and so on and so forth that you find in Revelation, we're really not to get distracted by any kind of future significance to those things. They're just describing scenes in heaven in the battle between good and evil. And so the book of Revelation, it doesn't contain prophecy of things to come, nor is it a history book of what has already happened. Instead, the book of Revelation is like a story, but one of those stories that's, a, that, that's intended to display something behind the scenes that's ongoing right now. So it's one of those stories where you have all the characters are different, they're all allegorical in nature, and what they are doing on the stage is to represent what is happening behind the stage. And so the book of Revelation is considered to be a drama. It is symbolic. It is not historical. It is not prophetic. It is just a picture of the cosmic struggle between righteousness and unrighteousness. All of the book of Revelation essentially happens every moment. And you are to get from it the conclusion that in the end, God wins. That's really don't lose heart. This kind of stuff is happening behind the scenes. There's a battle going on, and it is, it is going to be ended with God's victory. This view is common, particularly among amillennialists, though some postmillennialists will hold to it. Some of these categories are uh, a little fuzzy, but 
What's amillennialism? If, if this idealist view is held by amillennialists, what does amillennialism teach? Amillennialism is the view that there is really no millennial reign of Christ on the earth. That's why you have awe in front of millennialism. There really isn't a millennial kingdom in the natural sense of that. Christ is ruling in heaven right now without any need to be on and that this millennial kingdom is just a symbolic kingdom and in the end he will come back and he will judge the living and the dead and then institute the new heavens and the new earth. And this view, unlike preterism and post-millennialism, the view of, of the idealistic approach to revelation, the view of amillennialism that's connected to idealism, is this view that there's this realism uh, that goes on in our present world. The gospel is going to have mixed success. So contrary to the post-millennialists and the preterists who say that the gospel is going to have victory over all corners of the world, or the idealistic approach here is going to say, no, it's going to be mixed, certainly it will spread to Christ, but it's a, 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 a realism that says the, 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 the victory is not here. The victory will only come when, when Christ will return. And so all the bad stuff that we read of in Revelation 6 through 19, you know, all those judgments that you read of that are hard to interpret, all of that is just symbolic. It's not real. It's a symbol of some kind of transcendent reality. Now, with that, we come to the fourth view, the futurist view. So we've had the preterist view. We've had the historicist view. We have the view of idealism. And now we come to the fourth view, and this is the view that we teach here, the futurist view. And this is how the futurist view understands the contents of Revelation, the futurist view, how it how it comes to interpret the book. And this is how it takes the prophecies of Revelation, which begin particularly in chapter 4, the prophetic portion, the things that are, or are, are to come, excuse me, that those will be fulfilled in the future. That's why we call it futurism. That Revelation is, is for the future. And the key to this framework is provided in this very important verse that serves as the introduction, kind of the literary key to understanding the rest of the book's contents, and that is in verse 19 of chapter 1, when John is commissioned to write. He's on the island of Patmos, and the Lord Jesus appears to him and then commissions him to write a book that will contain these this revelation of Jesus that he has given, verse 19, it says this, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. So as we're going to discuss when we get into the exposition of Revelation 1, this verse is that contents for the whole book. And we're to see it essentially between the, the, the division between three sections of the book of various lengths. The first is the things which you have seen, speaking of something that 
in the moment of the Apostle John was something that he had just experienced. And what he had just seen is everything from 1 verse 1 up until the, the, the vision, the appearance of the glorious Christ. I read some of those verses already this morning. That's, that refers to the things which you have seen. And then the second portion of the book, a little bit longer in length, relates to the letters of which we're familiar in chapters 2 to the seven churches. Those are the things which are, as Jesus gives his assessment on these seven historical churches and provides to them direct responses, exhortations, and encouragements to each of those seven churches. That was happening at the moment of John's exile. Those churches were in existence. Those churches had those issues that, that they had to deal with. And that relates to that phrase, the things which are. And then you have the final section there of that verse, and the things which will take place after these things. And that refers to everything from 4 verse 1 all the way to the end of chapter 22. And so that refers to the age of the churches, after the church age. And so a futuristic view will say that everything from chapter 4, verse 1 on, everything after in the timeline, the age of the church in which the churches are on this earth functioning and either are healthy or unhealthy, either need encouragement or need admonition, everything after that period of time, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1 and on, is future from where we stand in the church age. And hence, the term, the futuristic view. Now, out of all of the approaches, the futuristic approach takes the book in the most literal sense possible. Now, what I mean by that, and, and don't um, misunderstand me on that, it's not that we deny the presence of figures of speech. A literalist approach doesn't deny metaphors. It doesn't deny the use of similes. It doesn't deny the metaphorical language that we're going to come across in the book of Revelation. No, but it does take the language of the book of Revelation within its context. And when similes are there, it's because the author has intended them to be. When metaphors are there, it's because the spirit-born writer has included those metaphors and so on and so forth. Moreover, out of all the approaches, the interest also respects the book's own identification as prophecy. One of the things with the other three approaches is that those three approaches redefine what prophecy is. They redefine it so that it loses its foretelling uh, potential, its foretelling power. But the futurist approach recognizes that the book itself calls itself prophecy. For example, we read it in chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. That John here, as he introduces his letter, has a term that he uses to describe the entire book 
that he is that he is recording. He calls it prophecy. And if you thought, well, maybe that's just something related to a few things in the beginning, if you turn all the way to the end, to chapter 22, as, as John wraps up this book, he four times calls the book prophecy, something that was future. He says in verse 7, and behold, this is Jesus speaking, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And verse 19, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life. It's called prophecy. Or the future also reflects the earliest testimony of the church. Yes, that's right. The earliest theologians, the earliest interpreters were futuristic even though they were living after the time of the destruction of the temple, and even after the time of the passing of John, they were reading the book of Revelation as future prophecy. We won't get into this, as I see our time is almost up as it is, uh, but uh, several early uh, testimonies, early commentaries, early manuals that were written in the early church, they're not inspired, but they're early testimonies to how, the, how Christians viewed things. You have the Didache in the second century, written around 120 AD, so just you know, 25 years after the writing of the book of Revelation, which we're going to put in 95 AD and not in 65. The Didache is referring to the events of Revelation as still future. The epistle of Barnabas, mid Second century, around 150, another early document is futuristic. The Shepherd of Hermas, another document is also near the end of the second century, around 180, also points to Revelation as futuristic. And then you have various early church theologians, men like Papias, who was known as the disciple of John the Apostle. If anyone would have some good insight on how to understand Revelation is Papias. He says it's got to be future. You have Justin Martyr. You have Irenaeus. You have Tertullian, a third century uh, bishop in Egypt called Nepos. You have Commodianus and, and Lactantius. All within those first couple of centuries, all of them saying that the contents of the book of Revelation are, that the contents are still future. Now, this futuristic view is the standard view of what we call premillennialism. Premillennialism. Premillennialism is the view that Christ's second coming occurs immediately before the millennium. So with all these millennial views, whether it's post-millennialism, amillennialism, or premillennialism, the issue is, where is the second coming of Christ with respect to the kingdom prophesied in Revelation 20? 
post-millennialism says it reverses the order. It says the second coming is Revelation 19 is after Revelation 20. Amillennialism says the millennium is already here. Christ is not going to reign on this earth. And so the millennial kingdom is all spiritualized. And then pre-millennialism, no, read the book of Revelation, especially its final chapters, chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22 in their proper sequence. And so chapter 19 is, is a description of the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20 is the millennial kingdom. And that's the view of premillennialism. And so we see it here represented in this kind of a, a description that we're in the, currently we're in the church age there is coming the, the coming of Christ, the second coming in which he will take his throne in Jerusalem, reign for a thousand years, then will come the judgment, the final judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the thing that is criticized about premillennialism, especially in our day today, is that it has a pessimistic view of the current age. I mean, just read even Revelation 9 through 19, excuse me, 6 through 19. Revelation 6 through 19. Pretty pessimistic stuff about all the judgment that is to come upon this world for all the unrighteousness, for the rebellion against God. And because we take that as the post-millennialists or the amillennialists will say, you pre-millennialists are, are just too pessimistic. You're down on where our society is headed, and you, you don't believe that we as the church need to use our battering rams, and we need to go to Washington, and we need to take over and institute Christianity in our land, you have such little faith. That's the view of post-millennialism. With, with, with pre-millennialism, it's not that we don't believe in the power of the gospel. It's not that we don't believe that that Christ has the power. It's that we read Scripture literally. And we read, for example, in Matthew 7, Jesus' own words, when he said what? Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. At any given time, many are on that path. The minority are those on the narrow road. Or we read Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, where Paul says, but, it, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And then in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, he goes on to say the same thing, but he says this, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, you find that the issue is that man, even regenerate man, is and what is last to turn to wash all of the rebellion of this world and to show how that last Adam will reign over it. It's not that we are just pessimistic about the future. It's not that we're pessimistic about the gospel. It's that we're truly focused on that last Adam who is the one to establish this reign. Now, how would we look at it? Let me just summarize it because our time is up. We will answer the next question next Sunday. But if you were to summarize these three views really simply, I'm going to put it on the, uh, on the, 
the slide here so that you can understand the difference between these views. So you have the four views, preterist, historicist, idealist, and futurist. And you want to see how each one of them looks at the contents of Revelation, particularly, as I said, the section from about chapter 4 to chapter 20. Where do they place them? If you look at the view of preterism, the contents of Revelation 4 through 20 essentially were accomplished in the years of John, in the years leading up to the destruction of the temple. So again, Revelation is about past. It's preterist. It's about the past. The historicist view is the view, as I said, is not popular today, but that is the view that what we read of in, in Revelation is a history book of all the historical events that has happened in humanity from the first advent until the second advent. The problem is, of course, as each generation goes on, there's more events. And so they keep revising what they're reading so that they can make room for the next tyrant who appears on the scene. That's, that's, that's the historicist view. The idealist view sees the contents of Revelation 4 through 20 happening at any moment, all of it, all at once, because it just reflects a transcendent reality. At any given moment, in any experience, everything from Revelation 4 through 20 is happening and is fulfilled in that moment. And then, of course, you have the futurist view as Revelation 4 through 20 is something that's still future. It is, we're in the church age. We don't know when that age will end. We don't know when Revelation 4 verse 1 will begin. We have not been given that knowledge. But when, whenever it will, that's, that's the future time about which John writes in Revelation 4 verse 20. And then as we quickly summarize how each of these views approaches the contents, we see that they all are spiritualizing it until you get to the last view, which takes it as its, in its, its straightforward sense as a true book of prophecy. So that's the summary of how to, in, how to approach the book of Revelation. Now, when we come back together again next Sunday, we'll look at something a little bit easier for us to digest. <laughs> so we've got that out of the way. Some very, very practical insights with why we are to study the book of Revelation. And with that, let's close in prayer. Father, especially when we approach this book, we are brought to an immediate awareness of our need for the enlightenment of your spirit. We know that those who read this book are blessed. You have said it so in the opening verses of this book. Blessed is he who reads and heeds the words of this prophecy. It is our desire to be in that blessed state, but we cannot get there apart from your assistance. As we start this new series, we do ask for you to enlighten us through your spirit that we might grow as we study its words, the words of this prophecy, and that we would be stretched, we would be challenged, we would be convicted, and we would be encouraged. Even though so many of its contents speak of the future, 
yet it was delivered for the church so that the church might know how to live and prepare for the end is near. We need that reminder in our own lives. We pray you do that through this study, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, this glorious Lamb. Amen.